on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. A lot of the marketing around that was, you know, starving African children with distended bellies, flies crawling in their eyes and their mouth and, you know, sad music and those children looking very sick and vulnerable. That is poverty porn. Poverty porn is when we presented with visual imagery of children or vulnerable adults that look sick, malnourished, dirty, dark lighting behind bars, things like that. Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Stover and I interview purpose-driven founders and leaders to educate, inspire, and empower your success in leaving an impact on the world. The goal here is for the rest of us to ask the world's biggest questions, build startups to solve them, and live fulfilling lives in the process. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is an author, speaker, social purpose coach, and highly experienced consultant with over 15 years in corporate social responsibility, philanthropy, and international development sectors. Starting in her early 20s, she founded an NGO in Cambodia, working on child rights issues after witnessing children living in extreme poverty. No good deed goes unpunished as she was awarded the Victorian Young Australian of the Year, Australian Leadership Award, and the JCI 10 Outstanding Young Persons of the World Award. Yet she would soon learn the world was not as it seems. After the hit of the 2008 financial crisis, she closed her NGO and started questioning the effectiveness of the charity sector and if doing good was actually having a positive effect on social problems. And so she began her work with organizations such as UN Women, World Challenge, Intrepid Group, and dozens more to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. Still disturbed by the institutionalism of children inside orphanages, she co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, which is shifting the way countries in the global north engage with overseas aid and development and has expanded operations from Australia to Europe and the US. She's internationally recognized as an ethics expert for the intersection between development, business, and philanthropy. And she's been featured in ABC, The Guardian, Project Syndicate, Swinburne University of Technology, Global Journalist, and dozens more media outlets. Additionally, she sits on the Victorian Government School for Student Leadership School Council and is a member of the Advisory Board for Australian Volunteers International's Child Safe Volunteering Hub. And if that wasn't enough, she is also the co-author of Modern Day Slavery and Orphanage Tourism and the host of the Good Problem Podcast. I'm honored to welcome founder and expert consultant at Alto Global, and a woman who regularly does household chores while wearing a live snake around as a necklace, Leigh Matthews. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And I'm so pleased to be here. I see you. You've been looking at my Instagram profile. <laughs> <laughs> I like to get a full sense of who I'm interviewing. So, <laughs> Yes, I do. Uh, my son has a children's python called Lego. And yes, she often accompanies me whilst cooking dinner. <laughs> oh, very nice. Well, uh, talk to me a little about, as I mentioned before, we got on the call, you know, doing a lot of research and just having my eyes open. Take me back to when you were first on your first trip in Cambodia and kind of that feeling that you got during that trip. I went to Cambodia on the way back from a long kind of working holiday overseas, I guess a backpacking holiday. And I went there specifically with the intention of volunteering. I organized a volunteer placement before I went and it was to be my last stop on a kind of world trip. 
and I'd never volunteered before. So I didn't really know what I was in for, but I kind of thought, yeah, I can, I can do this. On the way there, I stopped off in Vietnam and I inadvertently ended up doing a day of volunteering at, at an orphanage for children with disabilities. So that was my kind of first experience. And it was a situation where I didn't intend to do it. I was staying in a backpackers hostel and I saw a a poster on the wall that said, uh, come and volunteer. And I talked to some of the other backpackers and they said, oh, you know, you haven't really done Hoi An unless you've volunteered at the orphanage. Now, Hoi An, for those of you that don't know, is a small city in central Vietnam. And I was kind of thinking, oh, that's so strange. But okay, if that's what you do, okay. And I went along and turned up at this orphanage for children with severe disabilities. And I was very, very confronted with what I saw there. I'd never been around children with such severe disabilities before. I'd never been into an orphanage. I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I, and I felt you know, a whole range of complex and overwhelming emotions, you know, sadness, helplessness, but also a really strong feeling that I shouldn't be there, that I didn't know the language, that I didn't know how to care for these children, that they couldn't tell me whether they wanted me to be doing what I was doing. It was a room full of foreign, young foreign volunteers, backpackers, feeding and bathing and dressing very, very, vulnerable children uh, with severe disabilities. And I left feeling very uncomfortable and chose not to go back the following day, but I really didn't know why. I didn't, I didn't have the kind of framework or the words to describe why. I just, it was a feeling in the pit of my stomach that it wasn't right. Um, but I continued on to Cambodia and I got there and I started my volunteer placement, which was teaching English in a small village about 25 to 30 kilometres outside of a place called Siem Reap. And I had to cycle there and back every day. And I turned up on my first day, no teaching training, no qualifications to be a teacher whatsoever. In fact, a really disjointed education myself. <laughs> and there were all these faces looking up at me expecting something and I you know I had this moment of going I can't, I can't do this I don't I don't know what I'm doing but I kind of dug in and took a deep breath and went all right let's do it and you know parents were looking through the windows there was a cow right outside there were chickens through you know in the in the classroom and I remember thinking what am I doing like what am I doing um and no guidance was provided around how to teach, what to teach, what they'd been taught before, what a previous volunteer had done. So I just started from scratch. I started at ABC. And, you know, looking back, I think that the children and the, the teacher that was there already were too polite to say, we've already done this, or, yeah. you know, countless volunteers have already done this. I persisted for a few weeks and I just couldn't get rid of that feeling in the pit of my stomach that it wasn't right, that I shouldn't be doing it, that I wasn't qualified. Is um, this what kind of 
Yeah, is this what drove you to start the Future Cambodia Fund? Yeah, kind of. I, I decided to stop going to my volunteer placement, but in the meantime, I had taken a night job working in a bar because I'd run out of money on my backpacking trip. So I'd taken a night job working in a, a bar in central Siem Reap. This was back in 2004, so it was not, if your listeners have been to Siem Reap, it's very different. There were no traffic lights, no banks, no supermarkets. There was one street with a couple of bars on it and that's it. And so I was working in a bar and there are a lot of street children and their families around and I got to know some of those kids and their families. I kind of started thinking, well, what's, what's in place for them? What, who's providing support for them? And I quickly realized that no one was and no one wanted to. Uh, I spoke to people running organizations locally and they said, oh no, no one works with them. One of the local hospitals wouldn't treat children that were from these families. The other one would, but the families were, I don't know, they were scared to go to the hospital due to cultural reasons. So I started thinking, how can I, how can I do something here? naively thinking that I could, you know, do something. And right. in the bar, I met a group of Canadian paramedics that were on a kind of mission trip, I guess, um, working with the local hospital. And I'd started volunteering doing some admin work at the hospital because I thought, oh, I can do that. I, I'm qualified okay. to do that. <laughs> um, and we got to talking and we decided to set up like a street clinic where these families could come to get kind of preliminary medical care, like assessed for deeper issues and referred to the hospital if they needed. And that was the start of Future Cambodia Fund. That was kind of where it started in terms of the seed of the idea being planted that I could potentially do more here. I never intended or wanted to open an organisation, but I and I tried to talk to other charities that were working locally, but nobody really had funds or interest in working with this particular group of people. So being very young and naive and <laughs> idealistic, I, was, I thought, oh, I could do this. So that's that's how it happened. What were some of the lessons that you ended up learning about social responsibility doing future Cambodia Fund? I learned that there's a whole lot of ineffective aid out there <laughs> and a lot of donors are just wanting boxes ticked to say, you know, we built 10 wells, but no interest in the fact that perhaps these wells weren't functioning after six months or there was no oversight in the quality of the well digging so that they were they were now, they had arsenic through them so they weren't usable. I learned that there are a lot of people like me, young people that were very idealistic that came to a place like Cambodia and were very moved by what they saw and decided to set up an organization. I saw a proliferation of those organizations and volunteers coming in over that time. I learned that running a charity is really, really, really hard and that I, sh I needed mentorship and guidance through that time that I didn't have access to. I learned that the Australian media and community really props up young people like me that go and, and seem to be selfless and, and really kind of 
does what I call hero worshipping. So, you know, here's this young girl that gave up her early 20s to care for the poor Cambodian children. That's the narrative in the media. On reflection, I think that's really harmful because it kind of engages other people in that narrative, other young people, and they want to emulate that and they think it's fine to go as a 21-year-old or a 23-year-old and start an orphanage or start a charity when they have no qualifications and no, no, no real kind of social license to operate or be there. So, yes, a lot of lessons. Funding is really hard to come across. It's very competitive. A lot of projects are donor-driven. And by that, I mean if the donor feels like they want to fund something, then the organisation has to completely pivot or else they don't get the funding. And I came out of that experience very, very disillusioned with the international development sector and, and didn't really want anything to do with it for a long time. Yeah, when did you start to realize that, you know, the good intentions that you may be doing are actually causing more harm or not doing the good that you thought they might have in the beginning? I think looking back, there was always that feeling in the pit of my stomach that I didn't quite know what I, I didn't quite know enough. And I, I'm somebody that, you know, I love learning and I will research and research and research until I know. That was really difficult to do whilst running a charity and having staff and running programs. And I ended up being completely burnt out as, as well as disillusioned. And I think it took me a few years to start having conversations with other people that had done the same thing, to start being critical of the, you know, the young people that found organisations like me and to kind of say, well, what went wrong? What didn't I know and why didn't I know it? It comes down to education, traditional education, but also life, edu- you know, life education, cultural knowledge, language acquis- acquisition, all sorts of things that really contribute to being able to make a meaningful difference in people's lives and not cause more harm. Working in child protection, particularly in international child protection, I see a lot of people who are very moved by what they witness, and rightly so, and are moved to set something up or or make a project. And I started to see a lot of the harm that that caused, particularly in orphanages. Through that, I think I did a lot more self-exploration around why we do these things, why do we start projects, why do we think that we know and we can come into these countries and and set up an orphanage as a 21-year-old that's still effectively a a child, you know? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to some of the things that you were trying to change? I mean, you talk a lot about volunteerism and some of the things that you were trying to do with like Rethink Orphanages Network. Yeah, sure. Rethink Orphanages was started by myself and my colleague, Rebecca Nett. I had both lived and worked in Cambodia in the child protection sector for a long time. And uh, we didn't meet in Cambodia, though. We met in Australia. We sat down in a cafe one day and we were talking about how problematic the huge increase in volunteers going to orphanage was, orphanages was in Cambodia. We were discussing what the government was trying to do to prevent children entering orphanages and we thought, look, it doesn't really matter what 
the government in Cambodia does at this point, if we don't work to address or stem the flow of people and money and resources from places like Australia to orphanages in Cambodia and other places, it doesn't matter what policies the government puts in place. Those three things, the the flow of the people, money and resources, far too powerful to really have any impact on what Mm. the government's trying to do. The government wouldn't be able to overcome those factors, that that economy of supply and demand. So we tried to come together and bring a group of organisations and individuals from all different sectors that we knew impacted orphanages. So the education sector, the charity sector, the the travel sector, obviously, and the faith sector are all really big contributors to the institutionalisation of children. So we, we brought representatives and organisations from those sectors together to discuss a coordinated strategy to stop sending volunteers to orphanages and stop funding orphanages and stop uh, setting up orphanages. And that coordinated strategy brought in government as well in Australia and we were fortunate enough to have a champion within senior levels of government who was able to get off the issue of institutionalisation and orphanage trafficking recognised as a form of modern slavery in Australia, which we're the first country in the world to do so. Just to give our listeners kind of a, a picture of what this, you know, really looks like, can you share a story that you had mentioned before about children kind of being trafficked into what was being labeled as a school being t- told to their parents, but it was actually to use them as, you know, to get revenue from these volunteers coming in? Yeah, sure. So. What you're talking about is orphanage trafficking. And when we say that, we mean that children are, one way or another, moved from their homes into an orphanage for the purposes of exploitation. So what often happens, and I can use the example of Nepal, families or communities are often very remote and very far away from decent education or quality education. And parents in these remote communities, like all parents everywhere, want the best for their children and want to allow them to have a quality education. And so what happens is scouts from orphanages come travel a long way, sometimes days and days of walking through the mountains to these remote communities and say, I come from a boarding school. If you pay me, I'll take your child to Kathmandu. And they will live in a boarding school and they'll come home on the holidays. You'll get regular reports. And, of course, the parents scrape together everything that they have. And often the scout will take a bunch of children from one village and do the days-long trek back to Kathmandu. The parents think that their children are in the boarding school. The scout has also been paid by the orphanage, so they're getting a double payment. Holidays roll around and the child doesn't come home or they're not getting regular reports. And eventually the parents might travel to Kathmandu to the boarding school and find that the boarding school doesn't exist and that these children have actually been placed in orphanages, had their records falsified to be what we call paper orphans. And in some cases, there's a few cases where they've been adopted internationally, but often children can be 
bought and sold and leased between orphanages. For example, if this child's good at traditional dancing and this child's too old and we want a younger child, they can be moved between orphanages. And all of this is for the purpose of having children in orphanages so that foreigners can come and volunteer with those children or donate to that orphanage. And the worse conditions the child, the children are kept in, the more money comes in. So that's that's what we mean when we talk about orphanage trafficking. And that is a, a, a real problem in many, many places, but particularly being documented in Nepal. I think it's just like a very good picture of, you know, what's going on. And when I was hearing some of this stuff myself, you know, as humans, we have this like innate response to want to do something good, to do something for others. Uh, but we don't always realize that the good that we think we're doing is not actually doing good. You have a article that's written about basically the way we make decisions about how we do good. And a lot of that is based on our emotional responses. I was curious how we could start making more intentional decisions about the organizations we're going to want to align with or things we want to do, and not have it be entirely driven by emotion. I think it's important to note that emotion is really that the base driver for us wanting to, to help. And often the reason we want to help is to ease somebody else's discomfort but also our own discomfort because it elicits strong emotions like sadness or frustration or helplessness. And so we are moved to take action to get rid of that in our own bodies as well as alleviate the suffering of, of something else or someone else. So I think it's important to know that, you know, emotion is why we do good and that's not a bad thing. Right. It's about being not solely driven by that. It's about being able to step out of the emotional space and take a rational view or a logical view in terms of decision-making. So, right, I'm moved by this issue. I want to help. I want to do something. Now's the time to step back and do some critical thinking, some research, understand a little bit more about the issue I'll use orphanages as an example because it's a really good one. It moves a lot of people, this idea that there are millions of children without parents living in orphanages that are desperate for our love and care, which is not true, but it moves us. That story, that narrative moves us. And so we might be kind of inclined to go, oh, here's some money. Oh, oh here's an orphanage, here's some money. Instantly I feel relieved. I've done something, I've helped those children. But you might want to step back and go, well, why are those children in orphanages? You know, what, what's actually going on? And do we have orphanages in our own countries? Is that standard practice now? I wonder where their parents are. You know, once you start asking these questions and doing a bit of research, you can start to scratch the surface and dig a little bit deeper and realize that, you know, 80% of children in orphanages have parents. The primary driver for being in an orphanage is poverty. Actually, that might lead you down a path of realizing that perhaps funding the orphanage, which is at the end of the road, maybe we can fund things that actually prevent 
children being separated from their families in the first place. Maybe we should donate to organisations that improve livelihoods for parents, that help bring them out of poverty. Maybe we should fund education programs that keep kids in school so that the cycle doesn't continue. You know, maybe we can look at providing funding for trauma therapy programs for, you know, countries where there's been a lot of conflict conflict and children and their parents have a lot of psychological pain and damage from that. So it's about really getting clear on what the issue is and then doing your research and finding a way to support that in a long-term sustainable way that's going to have impact over time and is not just band-aiding and in fact causing far greater problems in the future. Companies and their marketers are pretty aware of this emotional response and are oftentimes trying to elicit us from Mm -hmm. it. Can you explain the idea of poverty porn? Yeah, poverty porn, the best example I can give and one that will be very familiar is when we were doing, a lot of people were doing the 40-hour famine. Do you have that? Did you have that over there? Um, It doesn't ring a bell, but... It might be an Australian thing, but uh, back when I was at school, we had a fundraising kind of movement called the 40-Hour Famine, which you did once a year, and it was run by an organisation called World Vision. And the idea was that you didn't eat for 40 hours and you raised money. And a lot of the marketing around that was, you know, starving African children with distended bellies flies crawling in their eyes and their mouth and you know sad music and those children looking very sick and vulnerable that is poverty porn poverty porn is when we presented with visual imagery of children or vulnerable adults that look sick malnourished dirty you know in a dark lighting behind bars things like that And that is designed specifically to tap into that emotion that we have, that we want to help. We're moved to help when we see somebody suffering like that. And it's really clever. It, you know, it brings into play psychology and all of the tricks that marketers use in every aspect of life. But the problem with it is that it's an undignified representation of a human being, of a real person that, you know, has to live with the knowledge and in many cases they don't know or haven't provided consent, but that they are forever attached to an image of suffering. Um, And this is particularly relevant when we talk about children and there was a case in Australia not, not so long ago, a few years ago, where a charity had three children who were dirty, lighting was dark, dressed in kind of raggedy clothes, in Cambodia, holding up signs saying future sex worker, future, I think, trafficked trafficked person or something like that. This, you know, an eight-year-old girl holding up a sign that went all over the internet, all over social media, saying future sex worker. It's incredibly problematic and is very, it is a breach of the rights of that child. There's no way she could have given informed consent to know what that would mean. Yeah. A big question around the idea of does the ends justify the means, you know, with this type of marketing, because it is effective. And if, you know, the money is going towards an organization that actually is doing good, like the the money gets put to good use, should we elicit those types of responses to get more money because it's actually being used for good? Or, you know, are there better ways to go about it? 
I think that's a really good question. As a as a child protection practitioner, I will always come back to the rights of the individual child. And to me, portraying children in that way is a breach of their right to dignity and their right to privacy and their ability to give consent. And so I don't think that one child's rights should be breached in order to raise money for his or her care or or other children's care. I think there are better ways to portray the challenges that we have socially at a global level. And children should be depicted, if they're to be depicted at all, as, you know, what they present as mostly in their life, which is happy, laughing, children playing with their friends. You know, it's... it's a moment in time that's often staged these these images and that's really really problematic because the internet means that it never ever goes away i think you know we know what on the marketing end you know that's sort of responses that we can elicit with the negative aspects but if we focused on you know the positive aspects and really trying to optimize we could you know get a very similar level of response both ways i think Absolutely. I think Peter Singer, who I interviewed on my podcast, who's a philosopher at Princeton University, he's an Australian philosopher though, he was talking about some new studies coming out that have shown that positive representations of people are equally as effective. But I think on the other side of that, and it goes back to the question you asked earlier, is that we as the consumer and the donor have a responsibility to also educate ourselves to do better and to not be the person that responds to these marketing messages that are exploitative. I I think that the onus is certainly on the charities that do it, but we as individuals should be taking some of that onus back as well. Yeah. What roles and responsibilities do you think like media and education like plays in investigating or, you know, delivering a view of this project? I think the education system plays a really big role in prepping young people for white saviorism. I like to call it privileged saviorism as well. In a lot of schools, it is indoctrinated into people from the very first year of school that you are privileged and you should help others. And whether that comes from a faith-based perspective or not, I think it really it's really pushed. And by the time young people get to kind of the age of 15 or 16, often they'll go and engage on a, on a school trip or a mission trip where they get to live out that ideal that they've been told that they, they can help. So I think there's a, there's a real issue there around creating this mindset of I am the saviour, I'm the helper, I've got something to offer, rather than actually treating young people where they are in their life, so the age and stage of life that they're at, which is learning. So, you know, rather than going and building, a, you know, a hut or digging some trenches and getting dirty and and really, you know, as a way to check your privilege. But for me, it really just cements your privilege. Um, But, you know, or, or volunteering in an orphanage, why don't we go and learn? Learn about the complex social issues 
that are driving poverty in these places or driving women to be disempowered or children to not access education. You know, treat young people as learners because that's what they are and they will be equipped to make change at a greater level as they grow. As for media, I think media really does play a role in perpetuating that hero narrative, that, you know, that saviour narrative. And like I said earlier, you know, I experienced that. I had a bunch of media articles done on me. You know, a young Australian woman gives up her early 20s. And it doesn't help. It doesn't help have difficult conversations around whether we have a right to go in and do this. It's just assumed that we do. And a good example is somebody went and started an orphanage in Cambodia and they'd been running it for years. They were young when they started it. When we spoke to them about the government policies and requirements and regulatory requirements around orphanages, they said, oh no, there's no laws here. There's no rules. So there's an assumption that nothing's going on, the government's not doing anything, so therefore they have license to do whatever they want. And that's really problematic. And I think that comes from the media perpetuating these ideas that you can go into countries in the global south or, you know, what other people call developing countries and just go and set up, set up shop. A lot of the problems that we've been talking about are what you call wicked problems. Yeah. How might we be able to work towards better solutions to these uh, specifically like in a cooperative structure rather than like a top-down approach as many of these are? Yeah, I think that's the key to tackling wicked problems. And I, I think, you know, wicked problems themselves are not solvable. That's why we call them wicked. And they're particularly not solvable because you can't come at it from one angle. And when you come at it from one angle, you cause problems on the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. The only way to tackle this is collaboratively and is with a systems thinking or a systems design approach. And that involves really taking a step back from that top-down hierarchical approach of we're here to solve your problems and actually going, we don't, we don't know. What do you know? And bringing everybody on an equal playing field rather than just because you have the money and you're the donor or you've got <clears throat> 30 years experience running an organization, you don't necessarily know more. And I think that's the key is, is listening and learning and not assuming that you know. How do we start to get to the, the cores of these problems? So like, for example, you've written about, you know, fighting uh, poverty we need to first dismantle the structures that support it and perpetuate it. Yeah. So, you know, with all these wicked problems, how do we really get to the core of what the, the problem is? Well, I think the core of the problem is the structures. <laughs> I think, you know, we live in a, a, a capitalist world that pushes the, you know, individual achievement and wealth at the expense of the collective or the community. The international development or the aid system itself is built on colonial structures. It's, you know, and it's an oxymoron because, you know, it goes in to try to solve the problem that colonialism caused, but itself is a colonial structure. And I think, you know, dismantling that system will take a really, really long time. And I think, 
it will be less of a dismantling and more of a slow shift to a different way of operating. But we need to be having the difficult conversations that are starting to happen now around racism and around colonialism and around how the aid sector perpetuates itself. You know, it's, it causes problems so it can fix them. And that those are the hard conversations I think we need to be having. Yeah, I think you also give a, a pretty good explanation about working in those communities and having it come, like the solutions come from those communities rather than a reliance on whoever is coming in to kind of solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that, that can be really challenging, for example, post-conflict countries that have been really conditioned to rely on aid and, you know, some of the primary kind of industries or sectors are the aid sector um, and it can be hard to unravel or unpack that mindset and come back to a really basic community level conversation about what's best and what do you want and how do we get there and it, it is complex and it's almost a wicked problem in itself because you know, organisations that want may want to facilitate these type of programs or conversations are constrained by the will of the, the donor-driven kind of reporting cycle. So what if the community doesn't come to a conclusion within the six months' time that have been allocated for that portion of money to be spent? You know, it's, yeah. it's hard because... It's, it doesn't nicely fit into a box and donors and reporting structures and even big NGOs like to box things up and, and have them fit into a specific timeline. Mm. Well, I want to talk a little bit because you do some consulting work for businesses and, you know, the ones that want to align with a certain mission or um, something that they're doing. How do you uh, help a business to decide, you know, what missions they want to align with? I think it's really important first before you align with anything is to work out what your values are and align with something that meets that. And so when I work with companies, we, we do some work around values and we try to understand the ecosystem within which they operate. A good example is I work with a client that works with women that run small businesses. A, a really neat fit and something that fits with their values is supporting women that are marginalised or escaping, you know, family violence or things like that. So there's, there's a really good alignment there. So that's the first thing. It's going, does it align with the core business that I'm delivering? Is it part of my ecosystem for my clients, my suppliers, you know, the, the wider community that I operate in? And then secondly, it's about developing a framework, an ethical framework for giving that really specifies what you will and won't support and why. For my own business, we don't support anything to do with the institutionalization of children unless it is effectively working to prevent it, you know. So, so having a clear framework of what we will and won't support and why helps us make decisions about, you know, if something comes up and I'm triggered with that emotional response and I want to help, I can refer back and go, no, actually, 
this is this is what keeps us on track. This is what we're doing. And this, this is how we can have a long-term sustainable impact and actually measure it over time and say, you know what, over the past five years, because we've stayed on track, it's aligned with our values, we're measuring it, this is what we've been able to achieve. How do you set up those like impact metrics so that you you know if your money's actually going towards something good? It's really customized to each client that I work with I because obviously they have differing levels of ability to contribute and it might not be financial, it might be in kind, it might be offering people access to existing products. What we do is we set up an internal system that measures. It also relies on the organizations that we partner with to be able to measure their impact as well and then to integrate that into how we've done in our own ecosystem. And then that results in reporting. I think it's really important for business owners to understand that doing good shouldn't be siloed off to the side. It shouldn't be a tokenistic end of year donation. It should be something that's really integrated into the DNA of your business and it should be applied across everything that you do. So it's, it's kind of taking a step back and looking at everything the business does, supply chains, customers, advertising, everything, and going, where can we do better? And then focusing in on, on what cause do we want to support? And then that's where that investment starts to pay back. I think it's a myth that, you know, you shouldn't make money off doing good. I think Plenty of businesses can make money off aligning with causes that resonate with their community, their suppliers, their clients, and you will see that return to you over and over because you're really living purpose, you know, through your business and and that's where you get. But a lot of companies will invest in consultants for marketing or, you know, financial advice and things like that, but they think they've got it with the doing good side. (laughs) And I want to say, like, the desire to do good is great, but the potential to cause immense harm through your doing good is also there. And that's why you need to kind of engage with people that can help you understand and align. Yeah, I think your advice about, you know, aligning with in a sector that you know you're a part of and then also treating it as a major part of your business is really important because now you are going to do the same amount of research you're going to put the same amount of effort and attention that you would put maybe towards your marketing or whatever but towards this part too so you yeah. don't just react from that emotion Absolutely. as well as if the domain that you're aligning with is part of your knowledge set you have you know more ability to recognize, oh, is our money actually doing something good in this sector? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, hopefully you're working in a sector that means something to you and you, you know, moves you in some way and you know a lot about that sector and you're right. You, you know, it, it's more of a motivation and you're improving whatever it is that you're involved in by engaging with causes that work in that space. Do you think we should do good work in our own communities or areas where we have more control rather than extending ourselves to other areas? Yes, I think I think the ability to have a 
greater impact over time, so sustainably, is there. A really basic example is if you work for six months on an issue in your local community that you know really well and you can regularly engage in versus going and building a house for a week in a far-flung country that you know nothing about, of course the impact is going to be greater. Of course your sense of achievement is going to be greater. Your knowledge of the issue is going to increase. And hopefully you become more of an advocate for the, that issue and you can see the change. You go into you know, a small community and build a house for a week, you'll never really hear anything about it other than perhaps an occasional newsletter from the organisation that you did it with. So yes, I would say work in your own community over time. What insights from the people that you've interviewed uh, on your own podcast have kind of shifted your thinking about this stuff? I started the podcast really to understand why people do good. You know, I I think at a from a kind of psychological perspective, yes, it's about emotional. You know, it's it's about that pure, basic, illicit of um, eliciting of emotion. But I wanted to understand what drives them to engage in a career of doing good. What have they learned over time? What frustrations, what challenges, <clears throat> what wicked problems do they have? And I think, you know, what I'm, what I'm learning over three seasons now is that injust- the sense of injustice drives a lot of people. They, they can't deal with what they're seeing in the world and they want mm. to make change. And the way that they do it is so different. You know, some people take a very traditional route and go through, <clears throat> you know, university, working in UN agencies, and then they come out the other side and, <laughs> they're, you know, <laughs> well, the system is really, really messed up. And then others like me kind of do it completely around the other way, but we all seem to be coming to the same conclusion Mm. that the system (laughs) is quite messed up. So many people are causing so much harm without realising it. And and I think what, what keeps getting cemented for me is that people inherently want to do good. They want to help. And our world has made it so easy for them to do so. You know, technology... Mm. I've, I've talked about this before. You can you can purchase a pair of pants online shopping and you can click one little button and donate $2 to whichever organization has aligned with that company. And you don't, you get a little, you know, a little, wee, I did something good for, for a few seconds. And it's, what is $2? But you don't know anything about that organization and nor are you kind of inclined to go and look look it up really unless you're someone like me that's forever kind of going what is that what is that (laughs) Um, so I think what I'm realizing is the world has made it very easy for us to engage in what we think is doing good and require very little critical thinking of us and I think the way to solve that is through companies doing better at doing good through individuals having critical thinking and research skills and, and understanding these issues and that they have a great deal of power and 
for organizations delivering projects to also do better. I think, you know, it, it's a system, again, a systems approach. Mm. What personally drives you to do good? That in, the sense of injustice for me has been really, really strong since I was young. Uh, I think at first kind of reared its head around animal welfare when I became a vegan when I was 11. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've always felt a great deal of empathy for people that suffer and animals that suffer. But I never thought that I would make a career out of it. And I certainly never thought I would, that career would evolve into picking apart the idea of doing good. If I think about and I talk to my clients about this, like what issue puts a fire in your belly? What is it that really brings up all of those emotions? And right. for me, it's it's children and injustice. So, you know, whether that's lack of access to education, whether that's, you know, being living in abusive or violent communities or families, that that is the thing for me that really drives me to want to engage in doing good but also to do better at it because I've seen the harm that people trying to help are causing. Well before I get to my last question where can everybody find you and the work that you're doing? So you can find my company Elto which is at um, www.eltoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find my podcast on my personal website which is leematthews.com. That's Matthews with one T. My podcast is called The Good Problem and you can find it anywhere you find podcasts. And I am on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews. Awesome. Well, my last question is how can we push the world to evolve? Have difficult conversations. Mm. That for mm. me is, is key to unpicking the complexities of what is wrong in the world being willing to have uncomfortable conversations about what you have done or want to do, be willing to change what you think is doing good. You know, as, as a white person, for me, I consume a lot of content from an Instagram account called No White Saviors. I find a lot of their content confronting educational, reading books about privilege and power for me are really important. I read an amazing book by an Australian Indigenous man, academic, his name is Tyson Yunker Porter, and it's called Sand Talk, and it talks about different ways of thinking. So, you know, completely different worldviews and ways of interpreting the world and how we can use those indigenous ways of thinking to solve problems. So for me, it's really about taking the responsibility to educate ourselves and doing that through uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, well, that's a great answer. And Lee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I'm really grateful for all the work you're doing and the awareness and education that you're giving others. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend, because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep evolving. Evolving.